And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show. Of course, it is uh, Tuesday as we get things underway this week. Of course, earnings really starting to pick up pace. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, this has uh, kind of been a trend as of late, really over the last few years when it comes to earnings season, is that earnings uh, beat. So if companies beat both headline earnings estimates and revenues, uh, on average, the rewards have been okay, but not fantastic. Now, there's always some exceptions, right? You'll see a company come in and, and really kind of clobber estimates, and they'll be up, you know, some big double-digit amount. But on average, when you take a look at the average kind of reward for companies beating earnings estimates and revenues, it's been okay, but not fantastic. Um, however, punishment has been, for missing, has been much greater. And this has really kind of been the trend over the last few years. So. Again, expect a pickup in volatility as we, you know, kind of continue to move forward here over the next couple of weeks as companies report these earnings and, and we continue to kind of see this pickup and expect if companies do miss earnings, uh, they are going to get punished. So you may wake up one morning and see a position or portfolio down sharply because of an earnings miss or a warning, et cetera. And we're certainly still in that environment where we have the risk that we're going to see some warnings. Uh, even though we're seeing economic data improve and we're seeing things improve in terms of consumer sentiment, there's still some risk to the economy this year. Um, leading economic indicators came out yesterday, and this has been one of the big conundrums for a long time. The leading economic indicators are supposed to lead the economy, right? They're supposed to tell us, well, when we should expect a recession or expect growth. And the leading economic index has been negative for 21 months. It's been, a, it's been one of the longest stretches on record and, of course, no recession yet, right? So this has been one of the big conundrums for the markets is all these economic indicators suggesting that we're going to have a recession, yet we haven't had one. And economic growth continues to kind of just chug along. Right now, the Atlanta Fed's expecting about 2.5% growth in the fourth quarter of, of uh, 2023. So we're about to get the GDP uh, numbers coming in here soon. That's expected to be over 2%. Goldman Sachs has just moved their economic growth indicator for quarter four above 2%. Of course, this is coming off of a near 5% clip in quarter three. So again, all these big concerns about economic recession, contraction, et cetera, just haven't manifest, manifested themselves. Now, it doesn't mean they won't at some point. They just haven't yet. And that's the risk as we move forward this year. Is there something on the horizon that is going to crop up and really start to show some weight on the economy? And will companies start to acknowledge that, and that's the risk to earnings, right? The outlook to earnings for the rest of this year. So when a company reports, uh, you know, Procter & Gamble reporting this morning, reporting $1.84 right now on earnings, stock's gonna be up about 6% this morning on that news. It's good for us, we own it in our portfolio, so we like that. Um, but, you know, the rest of this year, what's that gonna look like, where's growth? So, you know, these conference calls from these CEOs are gonna be very important. Uh, CEO confidence remains very low. Their, their outlook isn't great overall in terms of the surveys, uh, but listen to what these companies say about the state of consumers, right? Are consumers 
buying more, are they strong, you know, et cetera. Inventories for these companies remain very high. So again, there's still a lot of inventory build that's out there and that occurred, you know, following the pandemic, we had all these companies stock up on inventories because of potential disruptions to supply lines. Those inventories still remain very high. So if those inventories don't get moved, at some point they're gonna have to start discounting those inventories to get those moved. That's disinflation, slower economic growth, et cetera, always into that. So again, just kind of things to be paying attention to. Okay, uh, let's talk about the most stupid chart on the planet this morning, put out by Ryan Carson. Uh, <laughs> I put this on Twitter, uh, but basically it's just a chart showing that when stock markets make all-time highs, that stock market all-time highs occur in clusters. And this was an amazing piece of research. Somebody must have spent days working on this analysis of course, all-time highs remain in clusters because once you make an all-time high, guess what? You're in a bull market. So today, if the market is up, right now the, S the NASDAQ is up 26 points before the open, we're going to have a new all-time high. So <laughs> every day the market goes up from here, it's going to be an all-time high. So yes, all-time highs always occur in clusters. And the reason they occur in clusters is because during periods where you're not making all-time highs and you're in a bear market, you're in a bear market. So that's why you don't make all-time highs. So anyway, <laughs> this is the point of all this. So here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. We're going to make an all-time high today. They occur in clusters as we continue to move up here. Um, triggering that MACD buy signals we talked about yesterday. Um, also in the commentary uh, on the website. So if you're not getting our daily uh, market commentary, Go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and uh, subscribe, and we'll email it to you in the morning. But one thing we've talked about over the last couple of days is that we're about to trigger this MACD buy signal. We'll do it today, actually. And we're already backed overbought. So RSI is back above 70. You're triggering a MACD buy signal from a fairly high level here. And you know, we've seen this before. Now, this does, you know, this certainly doesn't mean anything other than the fact that you can certainly continue to kind of grind your way higher. And as we've talked about uh, uh, before, is that if we go back and look at a similar period where we did this back in this June July period of last year, the markets got you know registered a sell signal at a fairly high level. Uh, markets were very overbought at that point. We worked off some of that overbought condition. But the MACD never really corrected, triggered another buy signal, and the market continued to advance for a while. And again, so there's a real possibility that we get some further upside here. That wouldn't be surprising because once you make an all-time high, you kind of get that momentum, that exuberance, that fear of missing out. So a lot of money wants to come into the markets. It's also a new year. So money wants to come into the market. They want to participate. So this certainly suggests that markets can kind of grind their way higher here for a bit. But eventually you're going to flip this sell signal back over at some point. There's not a lot of upside before you're eventually going to just kind of exhaust the market, exhaust buyers, and you're going to get that next sell signal, of course, uh, when we did trigger that next sell signal and then it work off that overbought condition. Uh, that was during that 10% decline through October of last year. So again, you know, this is not uncommon that you're flipping signals at a fairly high level. That's just simply a sign of exuberance. Um, excited, uh, you know, it's kind of a sign of money flows coming into the markets. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. It does suggest that upside is somewhat limited in the near term. Now, again, that could be three, four, five percent higher, but you know, before you're going to go substantially higher in the markets, you're going to have to work off this overbought condition, reset the bar, the market in terms of buyers and sellers to a degree, 
and then that's what allows you to have the next advance in the market. It's just the cycle of the market and how it works. But again, we're just with this, this advance has started back at the la uh, in October, beginning of November, is very long in the tooth. You know, we've talked about these buying stampedes and selling stampedes. This has been a very long run of a buying stampede. So again, there's just simply a function of money, right, that's out there. And if you take a look at cash allocations of investors, they're getting fairly low. A um, lot of equity allocations, very little cash. Buying power is starting to get limited here to a great degree. And so everybody that's wanted to buy stocks have already bought stocks. And that's why you get these buying stampedes. But again, eventually, and, and don't know when it's going to happen or what's going to cause it, you will get the opposite of that, which will be a selling stampede. That's where you'll get a correction. That'll obviously give you a much better point to add aggressively to your portfolio. Again, we're in a bull market, nothing wrong with that. And again, you want to honor the fact that we're in a bull market, but use corrections and pullbacks to make better entry points. But again, right now, everything's fine. We're going to trigger a buy signal, suggest higher highs here over the next couple of weeks as we wrap up the month. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about today's blog post about all-time highs and what that means and why there's some disparity. We'll talk about that next on The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. back to the show this morning. Uh, a lot of stuff going on. Of course, we're trying to get ready very quickly here for the summit this weekend uh, with Greg Valliere. So if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, um, there are a few left. Um, it's the seating in the back. No, it's open seating. Uh, just get there early. Um, but if, if you want to come to the uh, summit this weekend, there's still a few tickets left. You can go online right now. Um, just there's a banner at the, pop, at the top of the webpage, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, just click on that banner and uh, you can get your ticket. Love to see you there. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, it, it was interesting. So Newsmax reached out to me and asked me to write an article about all-time highs. And, you know, there's and, – and it's interesting because there's this bifurcation between the news – Right, so if you watch CNN or Fox or Newsmax, etc., um, you get very different opinions about things and about what's going on in the economy. Um, but what's interesting more than anything is that on a consumer basis, consumers are not real exuberant about the economy. And, you know, the, and so there's this kind of the detachment, right? we got all-time highs in the markets. And yet, if you take polls, right, uh, you know, from consumers, et cetera, they're not real happy. Um, and, you know, because they're just trying to make ends meet. They're just trying to, you know, uh, you know try to get things taken care of for their family. And it's just tough, right? Um, things are expensive. Inflation's a problem. And I thought it was interesting because there was a poll. So Axios, uh, which is um, a very left-leaning website, and they, you know, very supportive of the current administration. And the reason I picked their survey is because of that. But, you know, so and, and the reason I picked that particular poll to make this comment is that, you know, 
right now there's all the support you know from left-leaning websites etc they're trying to support the Biden administration for the election right so that the election is right around the corner and you don't want to go into an election with a bad economy that's just not that that's not going to get you to win if the economy is bad when you when you go into election and so the economic data is not bad right we take a look at gdp we take a look at you know kind of uh, uh you know economic indicators unemployment rates are low so lots of stuff to run on you know if i'm president biden running for office you know, I'm touting the strength of the economy. I'm touting the strength of unemployment. I'm touting wage growth. That's there, right? I'm touting stock market all-time highs. But I thought this was an interesting statement from Axios. Poll after, this is a quote directly from Axios. Poll after poll shows that the country is bummed out by the economy. Voters blame Biden. Now remember, this is a left-leaning organization. Right. Voters blame Biden. Nearly four in 10 Americans rate their financial situation as poor, according to a new Axios Vibe survey by the Harris Poll. In the language of our new Vibe series, which taps into the depth of Americans' feelings, those surveys feel sad about jobs in the economy. But wait a second. We've got the stock market at all time highs, unemployment is at historic lows jobless claims are at historic lows so what's there to be bummed out about right this is the great detachment between what the media tells you right and what the stock market tells you i mean if you just looked at the stock market making all-time highs right now and, and having rallied sharply since october of 2022 if that's all you looked at as an economic indicator, you'd say everything's fine. But there's this big detachment. We compile a, a sentiment index. So, you know, we have University of Michigan uh, consumer sentiment. You have the conference board sentiment indexes. So we compile a composite of both of those, of both of those sentiment indicators, just try to get a broader measure. And it's interesting right now, there is a very big detachment between current expectations or our current situation and future expectations. Uh, I have a chart of this, if Brent will bring it up for me. And, and so it's, you know, it's one of the deepest that we've had in quite some time. And it doesn't you know, necessarily mean anything other than there's just a very big break between how people feel now versus what they think the future is going to be like. Right now, they're very negative. And, and so... When we, when we talk, and this is, again, you know, this is at the time that we're now making all-time highs. And so we can kind of break this out a little bit, and we can kind of look at the composite index in terms of both the current conditions and expectations, just individual components. Um, Fed funds, of course, have, have risen sharply. So, you know, that, that rise, when, whenever the Fed's hiking rates, right, that raises borrowing costs for individuals, and it's not surprising, that as a function they're under pressure. Higher interest rates, I can't buy as much, things cost me more, I can't buy a house, you know, whatever it is, right? I can't, can't afford a car because of the interest rate. So naturally they're bummed out. And, and so that all kind of makes you know, complete sense, but you would expect you know, that to be reflected in the stock market, right? And it just really hasn't been. Now, what is good news though, is that the, the, the lift in 
the markets is improving that confidence. If you know, if we if that going back to that chart, consumer confidence is improving. It's still very low. It's still well deviated from its previous peak. I mean, there's you know, you take a look at consumer confidence. They're they're not overwhelmingly happy, right? But it is improving because the stock market is going up. They feel better, and you know, naturally that should translate into a pickup in economic activity, right? I do feel better about the markets. I feel like I have more money. There's more money in my 401k plan. So I'll go spend a little bit more. You know, I'll take a trip. I'll go ahead and buy something, whatever it is, because I feel that. So there's a correlation between improvements in consumer confidence and PCE, right? Those are personal consumption expenditures. That makes up 70% of the economy. So not surprisingly, you know, we keep seeing retail sales come in. They're strong. And that's because of this improvement that we're seeing in consumer confidence. But it's still extremely low. Right? It's still extremely low relative to historical norms. And, and so it doesn't quite jive with what we've seen going on in the markets. But the markets are no longer really representative of what's happening in the real economy because we used to trade on fundamentals, right? We would look at a company and we'd say, okay, this company, A, B, C, whatever, um, based on its earnings and its growth rates, um, you know, we're going to assign it a valuation, and so this is where the stock should trade. And and we used to we used to we used to back you know 400 years ago when I first started in the business, you know, we bought stocks based on fundamentals. Now we don't. If we did, you wouldn't have companies trading at 20 and 30 times price to sell on a consistent basis, right? What we buy now is we buy liquidity. And this has been a advent of the markets really ever since 2009, coming out of the financial crisis when the Federal Reserve began massive rounds of quantitative easing, zero interest rates, et cetera. And, and we can go back and we just, you know, we, we just can look at the markets. And ever since the, the Fed has become extremely active. And you can note that the increases and contractions in the balance sheet have, been, have become extremely uh, um, exaggerated since 2009. But when there are periods where liquidity is increasing, in other words, the Fed is cutting rates and expanding their balance sheet, markets go up. When we're in a period where the Fed's hiking rates and contracting their balance sheet, markets tend to struggle, except this time. This time was different because after 13 years of this environment, investors learned it. And so now they front ran it. So even though the Fed was still contracting their balance sheet and hiking rates, markets went up in anticipation of Fed rate cuts and interest rate reductions, and increases in balance sheets, et cetera. So it's a very different environment today, which is why there's this dichotomy between the markets and the, what's happening in the real economy, right, around the kitchen table. You go sit down with a family and talk about their financial situation. It's not great. But the markets are doing fantastic. And... It's interesting because 
when you take a look at the financial markets, it is now all about liquidity. There was a, a recent survey out from Bank of America, and they, they asked people, they said, what's the biggest driver of prices in 2024? 52% said the Fed. 7% said liquidity, and that 7% is actually controlled by the Fed. <clears throat> so it's actually 59% of the, of the drivers for the stocks in 2024 is going to come from the Fed. So, again, it's all about liquidity. It's all about the Fed. It's no longer about fundamentals. So that's why the markets are pinging all-time highs, despite the fact that the rest of the economy is not great. And unfortunately for the markets, it's, it's a very lopsided investment. We'll come back after the break. We'll talk about market dynamics over the last couple of years because of Fed liquidity and the chase for growth. Don't go away. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Be right back. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com looking for clarity for your investments in the new year you must attend our 2024 economic summit navigating markets in a presidential cycle featuring greg valier trump will be a big presence the bigger story in my opinion is how weak joe biden is going to be is the Fed finished tightening? Liquidity, I think, is underestimated. Will rates ease this summer? States are still flush with cash. They haven't spent all their money from the pandemic relief bill. How will the election affect your investments? I don't see any political figure right now who can bring the country conclusively back together again. Register now for our 2024 Economic Summit, Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier with special guest Adam Taggart, plus Michael Lebowitz and Lance Roberts, Saturday, January 27th at the Hotel Sonesta Houston. Navigating markets in a presidential cycle. Featuring Greg Valier. Saturday, January 27th at the Hotel Sonesta Houston. Registration open now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So just for the break, talking a little bit about this uh, interesting kind of gap we have right now between the markets and the economy and at least economic sentiment, consumer sentiment in particular. And again, poll after poll just it really kind of comes down on the fact that the average American is just not happy about things in general. And uh, this is a time going into the election, and which is interesting because, again, you know, market's hitting all-time highs. The economy's doing fine. Unemployment's low. I mean, for, some, for an incumbent going into re-election, I mean, this is the perfect setup. But yet the polls don't suggest that. Um, you know, Biden's approval rating right now is at some of the lowest levels ever. So, again, there's this big disconnect between the markets 
and people and what they show. And we're talking about the fact that it's all about liquidity now in the last segment. And, you know, it's, it's all about the Fed. And that has just become simply a chase of growth. And if, if you take a look at the market, really, ever since 2020, back, go back to 2020, January 2020, technology is the clear winner by far. In fact, every other sector has performed worse than the S&P 500 on average. And this is just price, by the way. This is not performance, just price. Um, but again, technology has pushed, and then, of course, that's also one of the largest sectors in the S&P, which is why the S&P continues to grow. But technology is just where money flows, right? So we go back to talking about Apple, Amazon, Google, Meta, these companies, right? And it's just been safety and liquidity, ETF flows. We've talked about all the reasons why this is the case, but, you know, it's Magnificent Seven. All last year, and so far this year, it's been the Magnificent Seven. And, and so this has been the real conundrum. In fact, you know, uh, we, we showed you this chart last year. So for 2023... The S&P 500 market cap weighted, which is dominated by those 710 stocks, you know, those top 10 stocks make up about 30%, 33% of the, uh, of the index and, and capture a big chunk of the inflows. It had basically double the performance of the equal weighted index. This year, so far, now th this chart's a little bit dated. It doesn't have yesterday's numbers in it, right? So this is as a Friday um, but as of Friday, the market cap weighted index was up one and a half. The equal weighted index was still negative for the year. So again, back to the same disparity in performance with just a handful of stocks really kind of driving overall market returns. And, you know, this is the, the you know, just a function of that liquidity flow having to go somewhere. And so it's going into safety. It's going into... Um, the areas where I can get you know easy in, easy out, and where I'm, I'm going to get almost what has now become guaranteed performance, right? So earnings, though, are going to be the key for all of this, right? As long as earnings keep growing in those companies, as long as Apple and Microsoft continue to crank out earnings, you know, this is going to last for a while. But if you take a look at the S&P 500 versus wages and savings, right, there's certainly a bit of a disconnect here. So as the average American, I only have so much money to spend. <coughs> Excuse me. Wages are declining on an annualized basis. Savings are, you know, all those excess savings that we had back from 2020, they're becoming depleted. So the question is the ability for these companies to continue to grow earnings at the rate they were growing earnings. And, and you know, this is, as we talked about previously, what's been driving economic activity so far and driving earnings for these companies has been deficit spending. And we've had this massive surge of deficit spending as the economy is contracting. You know, we're building chip plants and we're building manufacturing facilities and all this. And so that's requiring computers and chips and technology. And we're doing all this AI development now. You know, Meta's spending billions on NVIDIA chips to, to integrate AI. Amazon's doing more AI. So we've got this spending that's going on through deficit spending. So we're increasing our debt 
but it's keeping economic activity alive at the moment. That's keeping jobs. That's keeping things happening. But it's not, again, deficit spending and what happens in the markets is not, does not really translate to the bulk of the economy. Roughly 86% of the stock market is owned by 10% of the population. So there's a huge chunk of the population that has no participation in the financial market. So it's not they, they don't watch CNBC, right? We talked about this yesterday. You know, if you're listening to the show, you've got some skin in the game, but you're a small minority, you know, you're a very small minority of the country. We, you know, we, that's why, you know, financial podcasts don't even make the top 10. It's not what people want to listen to because they don't have any money. I don't want to listen to a, a podcast about money when I have no money. That's just depressing. <laughs> so, you know, oh, you should just do this with your money. Well, I'd love to if I had some. But this is why it all comes down to earnings. And the one thing that we're going to have to come to grips with is that earnings growth isn't as strong as we're pricing the markets to be. And at some point, valuations are going to matter. Question is when, we don't know. But at some point, we're going we're gonna to have to realize that the earnings growth that we're expecting is not there. In fact, uh, you know, I've showed you this chart a couple of times, but just since the initial estimates for 2024 came out, they're already down $10 a share. And those are going to decline more as we get further into this year because earnings estimates can't keep up the pace that Wall Street expects them to currently. And then we talk about valuations. You know, what are we paying for those earnings? And the deviation of earnings currently from the long-term trend is just as uh, near some of the higher levels in history, right? Just And they're, they're, they're not sustainable at these levels long-term. You're going to have to have a valuation reversion at some point. The question is what's going to cause it, right? And that doesn't mean tomorrow. That doesn't mean it's going to happen this year. I mean, this is something that could happen a decade from now, right? It's just that there is an instant sustainability of valuations from their long-term trends currently in the markets. So, you know, as we talk about, you know, the markets at all-time highs, there's this big disparity between the average American and everybody else. Well, and, and the big chunk of that disparity is that the average American doesn't participate in the stock market. But the important takeaway from this is that these all-time highs are driven by a massive flood of liquidity and expectations of more liquidity from the Fed through rate cuts, reversal of QT, going back to QE, buying bonds, those type of things. What that means going forward is the interesting question. As I've said before, you know, we spent $43 trillion over the course of the last decade to generate the levels of economic growth that we had, you know, moderating at 2.5%. We kept in interest rates at zero. Uh, we suppressed inflation. To get the financial market returns that we got was due to all that liquidity. The question is, going forward, is, you know, where's that liquidity going to come from? Are we going to do more, you know? Are we going to be doing more QE? And, and the answer is probably yes, by the way, but it's a rhetorical question. The question is, is where is that liquidity? Oh, more QE, more deficit spending? Yes, that's where it's going to come from. The question, of course, is when the bill comes due. The mistake that investors make right now is assuming that bill is going to come due tomorrow. 
That's not the case. But there is a negative knockoff effect of continued increases in debts and deficits, and that is slower economic growth, less economic prosperity, and greater divides between the rich and the poor. QE as a function and zero interest rates as a function are a wealth transfer mechanism from the middle class and the poor to the wealthy. The reason that is is because the wealthy own a big chunk of the financial assets. The wealthy own the production side of the equation. They're the, the business owners. They're the ones producing the electric vehicles. They're the ones producing, you know, the gadgets you buy in your house, etc. Those are the wealthy for the most part. How many poor people you know that own a company? Okay, so mostly wealthy people own those manners of production that those products are then sold to the middle and poor classes. So the more that we boost the liquidity in the system through deficits, et cetera, the more wealth that gets extracted over time. And that's why there's this continuing gap between those, between the literally the haves and the have-nots. And this is why it's always important when we talk about, you know, hey, if you really want to build wealth, you don't really build wealth in the stock market. The stock market is what keeps you wealthy. If you want to build wealth, become a provider of the means of production. You don't want to be on the consumption side of the equation. That's where you really build wealth at. And that's the function of capitalism. Anyway. Quick break. We'll come back. We'll wrap up the show. Um, earnings coming in this morning. Um, also, we got some other data to, to click through here real quick as um, we get ready to start the day. Futures are eh, flattish. Come back out the break. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so welcome back to the show this morning um all right so that whole conversation that we just had about markets and earnings and those type of things uh, that's today's article on the website. So if you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, go to the Insights tab. It's today's blog. It's right. It's the first one that's listed on the Insights tab. So all the charts and graphs are there, and you can kind of go through the analysis yourself if you'd like. Um, like I said, Newsmax asked me to write that article, so that was the reason I wrote that article. Um, coming up Friday, um, I've got an interesting article coming out about retirement. Uh, some interesting studies coming out here recently. So the impact of equities and retirement. So, and of course, Saturday, of course, we have the, the summit. And next week, I'll make available my slide deck 
if you want it from the summit. You don't get the conversation. You get the slide deck. <laughs> if you want the conversation, you have to come to the summit. So love to see you there, by the way. Like to meet you. Um, so, all right. So uh, this morning, futures are up a little bit. Interestingly enough, Bitcoin is at below 40000 and, you know, we talked about this last month, not, not this past Monday, but the Monday before last. Um, that was when they launched the ETFs, right, the Bitcoin ETFs. And, you know, at the time I said, you know, I don't know how this is really going to work because, this, you know, all this demand, you know, so if I buy a spot coin ETF, right, I, I buy the ETF and then the ETF has got to buy the Bitcoin, et cetera, should have provided, you know, I would have thought a boost to Bitcoin. It's been just the opposite. Um, ever since the announcement of the Bitcoin ETFs, Bitcoin has slid. Um, this past week, there were net outflows of most of the spot, coin, uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs. So, you know, it's been kind of a, an anomaly here. Now, one one side item of this that is putting pressure on the whole issue, and, and you know, this is one of those timing couldn't have been worse type situation. Um, you remember the whole FTX scam that we talked about? You know, this is this is Sam Bankman, you know, Sam Bankman Fried, and the the whole FTX thing. Well, FTX had. A couple of billion dollars worth of grayscale Bitcoin trusts that got liquidated this past week. So at the time that these Bitcoin things are being launched, there's this big chunk of liquidation of these of FTX's grayscale Bitcoin trust. So you subtract those outflows, you know, from the inflows, and that was part of the problem. So again, this may resolve itself, but uh, Bitcoin is is again it's lower this morning by about. Um, Three and a half percent at the moment, uh, so you know it, it's it's. I'm waiting for you know kind of some st stability in these ETFs, and, and again, if we can give them a little bit more time here, and I, you know, I'd say another give them a couple of months if you're if you're interested in these, right? Um, I'd give them a couple more months, and the reason I say that is for a couple of reasons. One. You can start to have a little bit of technical analysis, try to see, you know, kind of where were some support levels, where, where are buyers showing up, where are sellers showing up, those type of things. Uh, you also can kind of see what the correlation is between the ETFs and the actual price of Bitcoin. It should be, since these are spot, they should be fairly close, but we'll find out, right? I will also find out who the winners and losers are, right? Uh, it's going to be, I would, if, if you were going to ask me to bet right now who the winners are, it's going to be BlackRock. It's going to be Fidelity. It'll be the big boys, right? Because they just have access to the flows. And they can just, they can put tons of money in their own ETFs as well. But, you know, give them a couple more months. These things will sort themselves out. And then we'll kind of see how they start to trade. I, I thought there was an interesting, <laughs> there was an interesting study out this morning. And again, you know, we talked about stupid studies at the open of the, the show this morning about, you know, all-time highs tend to cluster. Well, of course, right? Because you're in a bull market. There was a very interesting study out. <laughs> they said, what would happen if you added Bitcoin to a 
60-40 stock bond portfolio. Now, the reason you own a 60-40 stock bond portfolio is to have lower volatility, right? That's the whole goal. I do 60% stocks, 40% bonds. I theoretically get some market participation. I have less drawdowns because of the bonds, etc. And so if you introduce Bitcoin, surprise, you increase the volatility. Your risk of drawdown increases sharply by even, by even adding just small amounts of Bitcoin to your portfolio. So if you're a conservative investor, don't add Bitcoin to your portfolio because you will not like the drawdowns that occur. Um, but again, it was just kind of an interesting study. It's like you didn't know this going in <laughs> to the study. I mean, there's some studies that you should just go, I really don't need to do this study because I already know what the outcome is going to be. Common sense will tell you. It's like we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars figuring out how a Frisbee flies. Those type of things, right? That's government spending at its best. Um, but, you know, well, we'll again, we, we kind of give this you know, there, I get a lot of, I'm getting a lot of questions right now. I was like, hey, you know, should I add this to the portfolio? Uh, to the portfolio? Just, I would just wait. This is kind of like an IPO. Uh, you know, we talk about IPOs a lot in the past, you know, and especially when we're going to kind of go through that rash of issuances and the SPACs and those type of things. We went through that whole little phase. Give them some time. You know, see how they're going to trade. See how they respond to Wall Street. How, how does the management operate? You know, get some track record of the price behind you so you can see, again, where support levels are, where resistance levels are. Yeah, sure, you miss, you miss some of the initial, right? But if it's a good company, plenty of time to get into the stock and get it. And in, in a lot of cases, right, remember an IPO, just like anything else, and these Bitcoin ETFs are another good example of this. They tend to get issued near peaks because that's when greed is the highest. So going into these Bitcoin ETF launches, Bitcoin was running up in anticipation of these launches. And so now people are taking their profits, right? Same thing with IPO, same thing with SPACs. This is why you just kind of wait. Just whenever it's a new product or a new... I, you know, a, new, a hot new thing, just give it some time. Generally, and again, this is like with IPOs or anything else, you know, they're being issued out at the peak of greed and exuberance. And so initially that's going to, that, that is going to pass. Those IPOs are going to decline in price and you can buy them a whole lot cheaper. You know, take a look at a chart of Palantir or, or a lot of these other companies. Palantir is a good company. Right. They're on, you know, they they do contracts for the military. They're into AI. They're into all that. Stock's been rallying here nicely. But, you know, if you bought on the IPO, you spent a lot of time in negative territory. Right. So you had you had if you were just waited, you could have bought the stock a lot cheaper. Kind of worked off some of that IPO premium and gotten into the stock later. And there's just a ton of these stocks. Right that are like that, and particularly after 2020, when we saw that rash of IPOs come out, everything under the sun was getting IPO'd. You know, we saw a lot of those stocks decline by 60, 70, 80, 90%. So you could buy them a whole lot cheaper, and they're still here. Uh, some, of them, some of them didn't make it, but a lot of them did. But all that premiums didn't work off. So that's why you just, again, not always the case, you know, not, it's not always the case. I've seen IPOs that just went up and just kept going, right? It just doesn't happen often. Generally, you get a better opportunity to buy it cheaper later. And again, it's just simply a function that we, we IPO stuff out. We launch Bitcoin ETFs. We do whatever it is 
kind of at the peak of exuberance. It's just because at that at that point, right, and this was our whole conversation that we had back in 2021 when we were doing SPACs and everything else is like there's a huge demand for product because everybody's got money to spend. We sent checks to households. So every teenager with a phone is now online wanting to trade stocks. So there's a huge demand for product. Wall Street's job, its only job, is to provide you product. Wall Street is not there to help you. Wall Street is not there to make you rich. Wall Street is not there to give you good advice. Wall Street is there to extract your capital. That's their job. Wall Street is a sales organization. They are there to sell you a product. They are there to extract your capital for their bottom line. And the sooner you realize that, as soon as you realize that about ratings and all this other crap that comes out of Wall Street, the better off you're going to be. Start doing your own research. Look at the actual reported data from these companies. Make your own assumptions, and you'll do better as an investor over time. Stop listening to Wall Street ratings because they're not for you. All right. See, got me on a soapbox. Stop that. Anyway. Um, this morning, um, we already talked about Procter & Gamble. They had their earnings out this morning. Um, 3M, Halliburton, Johnson & Johnson this morning as well. Uh, Lockheed Martin, Netflix is today, so keep a watch on that. Verizon. Um, tomorrow, got a good bit of economic data coming out. We're going to see global services, the SP Global Services PMI and uh, manufacturing PMI. We're about to start getting into inflation data. The next week, we have the FOMC. So the big thing for next week is, does the Fed try to walk back some of this exuberance that they launched into the market back in December? That's going to be the big question for next week. All right. Have a great day. Um, we'll be back tomorrow with Danny Ratliff We're talking about markets and money. We'll talk about what happens in the markets today. Um, also, make sure you get your tickets for the upcoming summit this weekend. And if you have any questions or comments, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send me an email. Always happy to answer your questions. Have a great day.